That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, brought to you by SupChina. Each week, we bring you a roundup from the world of business in China from Caixin, China's authority on business and financial news, as well as interviews with Caixin Global reporters and editors. I'm Kaiser Guo from the Seneca Podcast. Ada Shen is out this week. First, a look at the week's news. Polish authorities arrested a Chinese executive of Huawei in Poland last week on charges of spying. The arrest followed the detention of Meng Wanzhou, Huawei's chief financial officer and daughter of the company's founder last month in Canada in connection with alleged violations of U.S. sanctions on Iran. The Chinese tech giant is under growing international scrutiny over alleged security concerns. Huawei issued a statement Saturday saying the employee's activities in relation to the case were unrelated to his work for the company and that Huawei had decided to terminate his employment. Huawei has been pushing hard to roll out next-generation 5G mobile telecom networks in Poland as it faces headwinds from many other countries that are concerned over security. The Communist Party committee in charge of China's prosecutors, courts, and police is probing a high-profile scandal involving documents that went missing from the Supreme People's Court. The rare move comes as authorities scramble to assure private businesses that they will protect and support them following concerns the nation's highest court could not objectively investigate revelations it lost documents related to a mining contract dispute between a public and a private company. Without the documents, the verdict, which ruled in favor of the private company, cannot be implemented. Private companies regularly complain that state-owned enterprises get favorable treatment in loans and market access, and in the courts as well. A video of one of the judges involved in the case went viral after a prominent former television host, Cui Yongyuan, brought attention to the case on social media. In the video, the judge claims that documents related to the mining project disappeared from his office and that security camera footage recorded around the time the documents vanished had also gone missing. The Supreme People's Court at first denied the claims before backtracking and announcing that it would investigate. Elon Musk, the CEO of electric car maker Tesla, visited Beijing last week after the company broke ground for its $5 billion factory in Shanghai. The project is China's first wholly foreign-owned electric auto project. Musk met China's premier Li Keqiang and was seen eating in a hot pot restaurant. 
Lee told Musk he hoped Tesla would become a promoter of the stability of Chinese-U.S. relations and reportedly offered Musk a Chinese green card. There's weighty expectation for the Tesla venture, which comes as China's car sales have started to wobble for the first time in decades. Population experts have painted a grim picture of China's future demographics as rumors swirl that the nation's population is shrinking. The new data show that China's fertility rate in 2018 may have been flat and, crucially, that deaths outnumbered births for the first time since the 1960s. A report by the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences predicted that China's population will begin to shrink by 2027, three years earlier than the United Nations predicted. The Chinese government abolished its one-child rule in 2016, replacing it with a rule that families have no more than two children in efforts to mitigate the effects of a declining fertility rate, an aging population, and dwindling workforce. While births did rise that year, they fell again in 2017, when about half of babies born were second children. Let's turn now, as we do each week, to some of Caixin Global's reporters and editors for a deeper dive into some of the big stories in the week's news. First up is Caixin Global Managing Editor Doug Young. Doug, it's been a bad week for the big Chinese handset and IoT ecosystem darling Xiaomi. What happened? Yeah, it's been a bad week for the company's stock, to be more precise. Xiaomi's stock shed something like 20% of its value this week. And it's just been sell, sell, sell. Uh, the last day of the week, things bounced back a little bit. But uh, the story is that it's been sort of like one of these witching hour things. Uh, they did an IPO exactly six months ago, and uh, they have these things called lockup periods, which is essentially a period of time that these early big uh, investors in the company can't sell their stock for until that much time passes after the IPO. So basically, this sort of witching hour came and, and you know, all these early investors started dumping shares. The volume was huge. It's like four or five times or six times higher than, than normal. I mean, this happens with every company. So Xiaomi certainly isn't the only company. But usually by the time you get to these end of lockup periods, you know, people are familiar with the company. Hopefully they're into the company, excited about the company. And, you know, when people start selling so many shares and nobody wants to buy them and the stock price tanks, it sort of means that people, they're still not convinced by Xiaomi. So this is, this is probably what happened. And like I said, the stock hit all time. Lows. It's lost something like 40% of its value from the IPO price. It did bounce back a little bit at the end of the week, but it's, it's still not looking good for them. So this witching hour phenomenon aside, uh, what has people so down on Xiaomi of late? Yeah, well, this is something that's been tough for them. They've, they've basically uh, tried to build themselves as a cool and hip smartphone brand. But the fact of the matter is, is they're super reliant on these cheapo, you know, budget phones. And, and that actually was in the news this week because their, their big budget line of phones is called Redmi. That's their cheap line of phones. It accounts for something like 70 or 80% of their sales. And so they officially did a thing this week where they uh, spun off Redmi into its own sort of separate company. And this is they're trying to tell people, anyhow, that this is part of a bigger strategy they want to do to sort of create different brands uh, under, you know, the Xiaomi will be the, the parent company, but have, you know, the Redmi. And there's another brand they launched, I think, late last year called Poco, which is supposed to be like a higher end brand for them. So like a multi-brand strategy and, and hopefully the idea is to wean themselves a little bit away from these cheapo phones that are really in an ultra-competitive segment of the market. 
the, it's really hard to maintain your edge in that area because everything is so commoditized and, and the profit margins are really thin. So on its face, does this seem like a good idea to you? Well, I think they're trying to convince people that this is a good thing, you know, that, oh, Redmi is just going to be one of many brands going forward. But right now, it may be one of several brands, but it's one brand that accounts for, you know, 80% of their sales. So they're going to have to, you know, you have to do more than create. If you buy a brand and nobody comes, then that's not really a multi-brand strategy. You know, uh, anybody could say they have 10 different brands, but if 99.9% of their sales come from just one of those, then are they really a multi-brand story? So you're right. Uh, I think they're trying to sell people on the fact that they can be successful in other segments of the market. But, you know, only time will tell. So far, people don't seem to be buying into it. Well, I guess we'll see. Uh, thanks, Doug. Next up is David Kirtan, reporter for Tyson Global. David, before we begin, let me just read the opening paragraph of this story because there's, there's just so much going on in it. And uh, here's how it opens. A controversial Singapore-based businesswoman with ties to the U.S.'s Bush family, is one of the new directors of a Guangdong province-based port operator now chaired by a former prime minister of Thailand, Caixin has learned. Quite a lot going on there, I think you'd agree, and it obviously needs a bit of unpacking. Uh, Maybe as simply as you can, tell us what this story is all about. Well, it's a complicated story, but in essence, uh, we found a lot of weird connections when we started digging into this. So, uh, in essence, Saishin found that Yinluk Shinawatra, the former prime minister of Thailand, after years of exile, had somehow turned up as the chair of a Guangdong-based port operator. Now, that in itself we thought was strange enough, but uh, over the course of the week, more and more odd details started to emerge. Okay, so what are some of these odd details? Well, we weren't quite sure about how Yingluck had ended up in the chair position, but as the week went on, it emerged that uh, the company had been bought back in November by an investor based in Singapore. In December, Yingluck, the former Thai PM, became chair of the company. We don't know exactly why, but uh, suddenly in December, she starts running this Guangdong port. What makes it even stranger, though, is uh, when we looked at the registry of people who are now directors of the Guangdong port, a few of them were connected to this Singapore-based real estate company called Singhai Group. Now, that's when things started to get even weirder. Registered as the non-executive chairman of Singhai Group is none other than Neil Bush, the brother of former U.S. President George W. Bush. And it turned out, digging around a bit more, that in 2016, they donated $1.3 million to the Republican nominee campaign of Jeb Bush. So we are finding all of these very strange connections. There's no apparent link necessarily between the Bushes and Yingluck, but it was all just a little bit odd. So tell us about the Singaporean connection. Well, one further weird detail is that one of the uh, major shareholders of the Singaporean company, Gordon Tang, was involved in an investigation in the early 2000s at the same port area where Yingluck is now chair, looking into alleged crimes to do with import and export. Now, it's important to say that he was never charged of anything, but according to company records in Singapore, people associated with his businesses were arrested and imprisoned for wrongdoing, and some of his assets were seized in China. 
And rumor has it, it's also important to stress this is rumor, supposedly Gordon is actually wanted in China for crimes related to smuggling and can't go back. So this is a fascinating and very complex story, but where's the tying bind if, if there is one? I guess what ties this all together at the moment is uh, the strangeness of uh, connections when we're dealing with high-level people and uh, influence. And at the moment, we're only getting like, little snapshots of a complicated web. It's important also to say there's no sign of any wrongdoing from the people involved other than the rumors about Gordon. But imagine that over the course of the next few months, more details will emerge that helps to tie all of these weird threads together. Well, thanks for looking into it, David, and we look forward to having you back on as more details emerge. Thanks, Kaiser. Finally, we have Noel Matir, Taishin Global's culture editor, who joins us to talk about junk food in China, but specifically about Coca-Cola and their obesity policy. Uh, maybe you could first give us a simplified history of Coca-Cola in China, which I remember encountering on my very first trip there back in 1981 already. Yeah, so Coca-Cola was one of sort of the first major mega corporations, really, to come into China after reform and opening up. Coca-Cola came in in 1979. But actually, that was their second time coming to China. They originally came in 1927 and were in China selling Coke until 1949, which is when uh, Mao Zedong sort of deemed Coca-Cola as being too bourgeois for the new communist China. But then later in the late 70s, when they came again, even though they were allowed to operate in China, they were still kind of treated with a lot of skepticism at first because Coca-Cola has been seen as the symbol of American capitalism and, and Western ideas. And so Coca-Cola was heavily restricted in those first few years. In fact, mostly sold at highly regulated stores for foreigners and often for tourists. Um, and in fact, one year after Coca-Cola did a promotion on the street, like an advertising campaign, that proved to be too much for the newly opened opened up PRC, uh, and they were banned from selling Cokes in China for one year. So it's startling to see how different things are today. Okay, so let's flash forward to 2019, and there's a heavy involvement by Coca-Cola and many other purveyors of uh, maybe not so healthy foodstuffs. Uh, what's the story here, and why is Coca-Cola back in the news? Yeah, flash forward to 2019, Coke is not only doing incredibly well, it, China is Coke's third largest market by volume, but also it was recently revealed in a report that was published in the British Medical Journal that Coca-Cola has been using what is essentially, or, or what critics call, a front institute to influence Chinese public health policy. And what do we know about this organization? Actually, the vice president of Coca-Cola uh, about four decades ago founded this institute called ILSI, International Life Sciences Institute in Washington, which has received a lot of funding from not only Coca-Cola, but other major food companies like Pepsi and McDonald's. And this is a research institute that does a lot of health sciences research. But then the Chinese version of ISLI was founded in the 90s and today is housed within the same headquarters as China's CDC. Uh, so the British Medical Journal piece suggests that this is really a lobbying arm for the junk food industry then. Yeah, so in the British Medical Journal piece, one of the founders of ISLI China, prominent nutritionist, almost bragged in an interview to the researcher who, who ultimately wrote the report that ISLI China has been very influential in terms of affecting policy. And it's true that they have drafted guidelines for things like obesity prevention that then the Ministry of Health has co-opted and used as their own. 
So I think I can guess, but what's the main thrust of uh, what, what should we call it? Uh, big big junk food, like um, like big tobacco or big oil. What's big junk food trying to accomplish here? Coca-Cola is deeply invested in pushing this line of thinking that says that what you need to do to prevent obesity is exercise more. And then it de-emphasizes the nutritional aspects of obesity, which is something that's very favorable to Coca-Cola, whose products are tremendously unhealthy um, and have been linked to weight gain. Okay, so just in conclusion, I'm guessing that obesity in China is, as everywhere, uh, something that governments and health officials could be handling much better. But what are the current trends in obesity looking like in China? Obesity is on the rise in China, um, and it's gotten particularly bad in the past couple years. As of 2016, 41% of Chinese people were either overweight or obese. And as of 2015, China became home to the most obese children out of any other nation. Well, not the best of news, but maybe this reporting will have an impact. Uh, We'll follow up with you, Noelle. Sounds good. Thanks, Kaiser. Thanks, Noelle. And that's this week's show. Thanks for listening. The Caixin Seneca Business Brief is powered by SupChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Tanner Brown with stories from the staff of Caixin Global. Thanks, of course, to Ada Shen. Special thanks to Li Xin of Caixin Global and to Spring and Autumn and Wu Fei for the music. Be sure to check out all the other shows about contemporary China in the expanding Seneca network. And be sure to follow the news from China every day at SupChina. Subscribe to our newsletter at SupChina.com. Take care.